Hi, I'm Judy Carter, and you're listening to the Power of Purpose podcast, where we explore how to live a purposeful life and how creative people like yourself can make a living doing what you love. And my guest today has made quite a living doing what, uh, well, we'll find out how much he loves it, but I have a feeling he really does. Maz Jobrani. Oh, come on. You know who Maz is. He's had about six comedy specials. He was on the Access of Evil uh, comedy tour. He performed his comedy at the friggin' Kennedy Center. Thanks so much for being here, Maz, and and, uh, sharing some inspiration with our listeners. Thanks for having me on, Judy. Good to be talking to you and good to see you. Uh, I know we crossed paths a couple times over these past several years, and it's always nice to see you. Oh, yeah. Great seeing you. Do you remember where we met? We met in Cynthia Zaghetti's uh, improv class back in the day. Actually, I, I tell this story a lot, and I and I also, maybe you can answer a question for me. So I had gotten into comedy because I was a big fan of Eddie Murphy's. I wanted to do comedy. And then coming from an immigrant background, Iranian parents, they wanted me to do lawyer, doctor, uh, maybe even an engineer, but it was really lawyer, doctor. And anyway, there was a struggle back and forth for years about wanting to do what I wanted to do and also listening and pleasing my parents. And it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s when I had a light bulb moment where I realized you live once and you got to live to please yourself, do what you love doing. And that's when I enrolled in the Acme improv classes with, uh, and the teacher ended up being Cynthia Zaghetti. And I had tried stand-up before. I'd always done plays before, um, but I tried stand-up. And the biggest issue I had with stand-up was I was comfortable on a stage. I was, I'd been performing my whole life since I was 12 years old, but I just wasn't comfortable writing. I didn't know what to write about. And I remember being in that improv class, meeting you, and then you said, oh, I teach stand-up comedy classes. I go, well, that's perfect. I'll take that so I can learn how to write. And that's where I took your class. But my question to you is, because I always tell people how I started, uh, and I always tell the story, what were you doing in the improv class ah. while you were teaching a stand-up comedy class? Why did you take the improv class? Well, first of all, Cynthia, um, love Cynthia Segetti. She's, she's passed on. But um, Cynthia and I went to high school together. Whoa, and, I never knew that. And, you know, as I think every stand-up comic should take an improv class because, you know, you do your setup, and as well as you know, then you go into your act out. You jump into the seat. And I was a little bit too much like what you're describing, which is write it out, you know, write it out. And I had a big stick up my ass and I just went, you know, let me, let me broaden up. I don't think you realize something and I don't think you know this. And I hate to tell you this because you'll probably want a lot of money from me. Yeah. But um, you said something just totally offhand in Cynthia's class. And it actually gave me an entire career in corporate comedy. Okay. And what you said, <laughs> right? what did I say? <laughs> you said, I remember exactly where you were sitting in the class and you said, you know, when you just say this word, it makes you feel better. Woohoo! You just said that, right? You just said that. And then I wrote it down. And then I um, got a call out of the clear blue sky to, I didn't even know about corporate gigs, you know, that you just, they didn't want you to do stand up, just talk about, 
lightening up and then yeah. they pay you a shitload of money. Yeah. And so I took out those notes of what you said and I went, you know, it's not what happens to us, but how you deal with it. And what if we can just go, woohoo. So, oh, wow. so then I have the audience going, I'm fat. Woohoo. <laughs> right. Holy and I moly. have I them. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, it's so unusual how our lives intersect each other and how we yeah. don't even realize um, the purpose of it or what we're actually giving to other people. And you probably had no idea. I, you don't think I owe you money, do you? Do I owe well, you? Well, no. Money? I mean, it's vice versa because I, I didn't have I, I didn't know how to write until I took your class, and it was a combination of you and you had Diane Nichols teaching and your book right. and all of that stuff. So I always, I always tell people, I, I, I plug the book all the time. I say, buy the comedy Bible. Whenever people say, how can I start? I go, you got to either do open mics or take a class. And then I go, buy this book. It's a great, it gives you great kind of guidance because that helped me. I was somebody who always um, did well with deadlines and classes. I didn't do as well at just figuring it out. So that's why I think your class was great for me because it was like, go away for a week, use these things, use these techniques. It's hard when, it's crazy if, or whatever those things were. But then once I got going, it wasn't like I sat there and always wrote like that. I just I just moved on and started doing what I did. But early on, I needed that. So um, similar to me giving you woohoo, you gave me <laughs> the techniques for writing at the beginning. And um, and you're right. I think I, there's the book... Um, the alchemist which basically says when you start living what you're supposed to do doing what you're supposed to do in life the world conspires with you and Ooh, that was a that's a good part that's... yeah that that's that's what you just said it's like you your path will cross paths with people that will keep pinging you in the direction you're supposed to go because you've now come to where you need to be mm, nice you know what I'm saying? really nice i say that i say to myself every day the right people are being drawn to me because you can get really bummed out by rejections in this business and i go oh thank god they rejected me they're just not right can they're going to take up space i want to ask you something do you remember this um i tell the story and i don't know if you know it but if you remember it this way but you did not want to talk about being from Iran or being Iranian, 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 um, American, Iranian, um, American. I don't want to talk about Arab. And when you were taking the class, this was a time of hostages and terrorists and, and all that stuff. There was, you definitely had resistance to it. Um, do you want to talk a little, little bit about that and yeah, what made I you come I, to it? Yeah, I don't remember necessarily having that resistance. I do know that, look, since I, I came to America in the late 70s and then quickly there's the hostage crisis and then there's Iran-Contra and then there's Not Without My Daughter. I mean, it's continuous. And then so I took your class in the summer of 98. So I know that it was in the zeitgeist, your, your Osama bin Laden's and some of these, you know, the World Trade Center first bombing of 93, all that stuff was out there. Um, it was pre 9-11. But I do remember, I don't remember necessarily having um, 
uh, resistance to it, it might have been that I would have said, oh, there's other things I want to talk about, which might have been, I don't know, dating or whatever. But I do recall going around the room and this is when I realized, oh, okay, I'll try this and saying and one of the things you taught was talk about what makes you different, what makes you unique and 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 talk about that point of view. So I remember going around the class and there was a gay guy and there was a, a unmarried woman and there was a short person and there was a tall person, there's a black person, there was an Australian, whatever it was, everyone's going around the room. There wasn't, there was one other guy who was Egyptian American, but he was very Americanized. And I think he even, he started talking about that a little bit, but I remember part of it was like, okay, what do you, what's your background? And I was like, well, you know, Iranian grew up in America. And then the idea of you saying, okay, now put that into a sentence. Okay, well, what, 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 what's your opinion about that? Well, uh, you know, it was hard. It's hard being Iranian. A little more specific. It was hard growing up Iranian in America. Okay, now let's come up with some ideas off of that. So I remember finding that. And my first five minutes coming out of your class, I think had a, a good, whatever it was, it was a five minutes that we performed. I think it probably had a minute or two at least of that stuff. And then there was a couple other things. I, I, I used to do this joke about... Um, uh, the credit, our credit card debt and how you never get, every time you make progress, you end up buying something else and then you end up having, and I said, it's kind of like getting in a boxing match. You know, every jab you throw, it's like you're, you know, you start out at like 10,000 and you're like, okay, you know, 9,500, 9,000, 8,500. And then it's like, whatever, uh, taxes, oh, 15,000, you're back <laughs> up, you know, whatever that was. Yeah. So there was probably me saying there's more that I want to talk about, but I do recall going into it and going, all right, well, I am that I am the only person with this point of view, so let me try it. And, um, and uh, yeah, I, mean, I think, I think, because sometimes people say, oh, do you feel like you're leaning too much on that? And I don't necessarily feel like I'm leaning too much. It's basically my background is what I know. And also, like, for example, when a black comedian comes on stage, they don't always talk about being black, but you know they're black and they might talk a little bit about it. Um, but I think eventually we evolve to the point where, you know, there's some of that, but we all there's so much we are all going through. Right. So um, that's probably part of what was what you remember as the resistance was me probably going like, oh, I want to talk about credit cards and dating and trying to meet <laughs> girls or whatever was going on at that time. That's not I think. Yeah, that's not everything I am. And I do think that all comics face that, don't they? Like every single comic faces like I don't want to be pigeonholed. I'm bigger than that. But what do you, what's your opinion now for comics who are begin, you know, beginning and they don't want to niche themselves, but don't you feel that that gives you your die hard fans, your core audience? Yeah, I think, listen, ultimately you got to do you. You got to do things that make you, that, that, that entertain you. I remember listening to, um, was it Mel Blanc, the, one of the creators of, of the Bugs Bunny cartoons, he was on NPR and he was saying that when they used to write these cartoons, they, I guess it was in New York and he said somebody from marketing would come downstairs from one of the other uh, you know, floors and give them notes and say, you got to do this, 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 and this. And he'd say, okay, we'd be like, all right, got it, got it. And then they would leave and he goes, we wouldn't change a thing. We just kept going with what we'd written. And then the interviewer goes, why? How did you know? And he goes, because it was making us laugh. So 
if it makes you laugh, if it entertains you, if it's something you feel you have to talk about, you should do that. So you may be somebody who is from the country of Cyprus and you're a Cypriot and people go talk about being a Cypriot and you go, no, I don't want to talk about being a Cypriot. I want to talk about my obsession with ice cream. Listen, if you have an obsession with ice cream, get out there, talk about it, go for it and and enjoy it. And people, like you said, people that love ice cream comedy will find you. Um, the problem becomes sometimes then those people expect something out of you. Like I remember, I remember people probably seen me in the Access of Evil comedy tour and that was me, Ahmed Ahmed, Aaron Cater, and Dino Bidala. And in an hour-long special, we're each doing about 15 minutes or whatever that time is. So in those 15 minutes, during the Bush administration, 2007, you're going to have a lot. I'm going to have a lot of comedy about my background. And it's called Access to Evil Comedy Tour. So we're all going to talk about those backgrounds. Um, but then when I go to my first special, Brown and Friendly, at that point, <clears throat> excuse me, my, my throat dry, it dried up. At that point, I've got, uh, I, I just had my first kid, my little baby boy. So I'm going to have material about watching my baby boy try to breastfeed and, and you know, he's not latching onto the nipple or whatever that is. And so that's what I wanted to talk about. And then there was sometimes audience members would come up and go, well, you didn't do enough jokes about this other subject. And I was like, well, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not it's not a focus group. I'm not sitting here going like, who wants X percentage of this and that? So ultimately, I would say when you start out, <clears throat> find what it is that you want to talk about, find what's on your mind. I wouldn't necessarily pressure anybody and go, just because you're from this background, you have to talk about this background. Because again, I, I remember being, I remember talking to this other comedian a while back and um, she had some, she was like a uh, exterminator, like, you know, the people who show up and get rid of the bugs. And she was trying to write material about dating and uh, we were there with Mike Marino and Mike Marino was like, why are you talking about being an exterminator? Like nobody, there's no comedian that's an exterminator. Like, like this is really unique. So if you have something that you're passionate about or you, that makes you different, makes you unique, that's kind of where I would encourage new comedians to start. Because as you said, and you know, you said in your book too, that's what makes you stand out. And then eventually though, you become more and more well-rounded. The, 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 the little dance that you have to navigate is not pigeonholing yourself because like you said, your fans will then say, that's what we expect. But you have to then train your fans to go, hey, we're all more than just this one label. We're, you know, we can talk about a lot of things. And so that's kind of what I try to reiterate. And I, and I, and I find that people seem to appreciate it. I have people that come to my shows that have nothing to do with my background but they you know either either we have similar the more you talk about your specific experience the more you'll find out how similar our experiences are i've traveled all over the world and i've done the same jokes for 20 different nationalities and the, all 20 places they've laughed really Why? Because I'm, even china have you been in china well, china never been to but i'm sure <laughs> listen the thing is like Bombed in China. Well, I did. No, I did. I did. I did. Um, Jakarta, Indonesia, Jakarta, uh -huh. of all places. And I was there, and in the audience were mostly Jakartans. There was, I think, two Americans and uh -huh. two Iranians that had moved there from Iran. But the other 496 people in that comedy festival audience were Jakartans. And the guy that I followed was a Jakartan who was doing masturbation jokes, and people were dying laughing. 
And I go, well, <laughs> masturbation jokes work here. So similarly, <laughs> similarly, you know, you do, you talk about being a parent, modern day parent and how whatever those jokes are, but being a parent here, same struggles as being a parent in Jakarta, same struggles as being a parent in, in Australia, same struggles as, you know, you talk about your mom or your dad, the way they treated you as a kid, very yeah. similar experiences. So, you know, it's uh, it's universal when you make it the more you know you be specific but you'll see it, it plays universally and those fans will find you yeah that is a really beautiful thing to find is that you can connect with people who've had a completely different life in a different country than yourself i just i thought when i when i played china and you do a setup like, ah, oh, I can't lose weight or I can't get laid or, you know, um, basically making fun of yourself. The, the reaction is, oh, and it's this, like, they, they don't find shame funny. And I, then I had to adjust to that. Well, it would, it also depends on, listen, that's where we all land and we ask the local guy, we go, what's your guys' issues, you know? And then you go, I got a joke like this. You think this joke will work? And, and you also then find out, what generation of audience members are they going to be older? Are they going to be younger? You know, for me, that's that's a bigger divide than than geographical. Age, it's you're age. Talking about. Oh yeah, because mm -hmm. you'll yeah. do a joke that you know uh, 40, 50, 60 year olds will enjoy, and twenty year olds are rolling their eyes like, "Oh God, who's this grandpa?" And then vice versa, you'll do a joke that twenty year olds are going to enjoy, and the older people are going to be like, "Oh my God, how risque!" So. For me, that's a bigger divide, the age divide and trying to relate. Like some of the biggest challenges I have, I have done shows for incoming freshmen at my uh, alma mater uh, coming into the university. And so they're usually 16, 17, 18 year olds. And I'm going, how are they going to relate to my parenting jokes? Like these could be my kids. And so it's become a situation of me having to say, like if I'm talking about my kids being a certain way, I, you know, I'll, I'll go to the audience. I go, do any of you guys have a younger brother or sister that does this and this? And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I go, yeah, that's that's my kid. You know, my kid. And then and then making fun of that, and then maybe making fun of their parents because I am their parents. But then my parents were, like, to them, their parents are uncool the way my parents were uncool to me. But the truth is, I could be their parent. But the trick is. I'm going, aren't our parents so uncool? And they're like, totally, dude. You know, and, mm -hmm. and so it's finding, you know, somebody told me that Gary Shandling once told them about finding the key to each audience. And it's like, we well, got to find that key, unlock it, and then go. So that happens a lot, you know. And Are and you working, toughest... are you working comedy clubs now? Yeah, I'm doing, I, I'm back on tour. Um, I'm doing uh, clubs or theaters, depending on the city. So uh, I don't know when this drops, but I'll be going to the Denver Comedy Works um, this next weekend and then uh, Flappers and then uh, La Jolla Comedy Store. So I do those clubs and then I just came from doing the Wilbur in Boston, which is a theater, did a casino in uh, Atlantic City. Um, so I got a foot in each uh, on each side. So let me ask you something. So I agree with you. Age is such a big divide and experiences. And so if you work in a comedy club, which is not like a college where you know the demographics of the audience. So you're working a comedy club and you got a lot of different types of people. You don't even know who the people are. Um, but let's just say they're, they're a lot younger and there's an age divide. What is the key 
to getting into that audience? Like what advice so couple, would you give? Couple of things. I think when you're when you first start out in clubs, nobody knows who you are. So I even tell my opening act sometimes, I go, if you're gonna go on stage, don't assume that they know you. Like either introduce yourself in in a term of like, hey, this is you know, this is who I am, this is my background, whatever that is. Or take a second to talk to some people, like in a sincere way. You know, sometimes people feel like, oh, I got 10 minutes. I need to do 10 minutes of material. That's not the case. You got 10 minutes, spend two minutes saying hi to the people in the front and seeing who they are, getting to know the guy's name. And, they, oh, Jack, oh, and you're here with uh, this uh, the, your wife? Well, she seems really young for you, Jack, whatever that is. And then let me tell you about myself. My name is Mike and I'm from whatever, right? Mm -hmm. I say take that time because you're gonna that will endear you to them now they know you and now you can transition into your material and if you do that that also allows you to maybe scan the room for a second and go oh my god you guys look really young what's your deal you know whatever that is so and then they feel they they'll appreciate this by the way because now you've talked to them now once you tour and tour and tour and do specials and people get to know you most of the people that come to your show are coming there, even if it's a comedy club, they're coming because they know who you are. So most of the people in that room, I have a little bit of a, or whoever's headlining has a little bit of an advantage where even the young people have seen you on TikTok or whatever, and they're like, oh, let's go check them out. So for example, just, just past weekend, um, the show in Atlantic City, I'm scanning the room, I'm talking about whatever, whatever, and doing, and I've done some crowd work, I got a couple of names that I'm gonna talk to throughout, and then I work my way to stage right, and there's these two guys that are I know they're super young, and right away I go, what I forget what I forget what the joke was, why I even went to them because I said something and I go blah 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 whatever, and I go like you guys have you have you experienced this? I go how I go first of all how old are you? He goes I'm 18. I go 18. I go oh my god. I go I'm old enough to be your father. I go in some cultures I'd be your grandfather, and then I start talking to him. I go what's your background? I'm I'm Russian and Ukrainian. I go, geez, like that is like very oppressive. Like where are your parents? And then the parents were on the other side. But these guys are now laughing and have a good time. And I have recently run into a handful of shows, and I get excited about this, where people are there with a parent and they're going, this is my first time at a live comedy show. And I go, oh my God, I'm popping your cherry. This is fantastic. And I go, I hope I didn't disappoint you. And it's turned out that quite often it's the kid who found me and brought the parent. And then I remembered, wait a minute, I got an, I used to listen to Eddie Murphy when I was 10 years old. So I go, you know, sometimes we underestimate kids. They totally get it. And they want you to do jokes that are risque. They want you to talk about whatever it is. Like they, they're there because to them, this is a cool experience. So I try as much as I can. Like I said, if you're a newer comedian, I would say spend a little bit of time just getting to know people in the room, just a hello or whatever. Sometimes a headliner might say, don't talk to the audience. But in my in my opinion, that's that's detrimental to everybody because you want your host to go out there and connect with people and set it up so that when you go out there, they're, they're warm. You don't want to go out there and be like, now I got to warm them up because you just you know, depress them for 10 minutes, you know? So I think really connecting a little bit to the audience, because as you said, you might have people in the audience who most likely, especially if you're newer, they're not going to know who you are. Take a second, do that connection. Um, and you might discover some, listen, being honest and being in the moment is some of the best things, you know, sometimes like I was in a show in LA recently and this young guy again 
got up to go to the bathroom at the beginning of my set. And of course, when they come back, and he was in the very front. So when somebody comes back and sits right back in the very front, everybody sees them. You have to say something, right? So right away, I'm like, was it a good piss? Was it good? You know, and everyone laugh, laugh, laugh. And, I, and he happened to have a black backpack right next to him. And I, I couldn't help myself. I don't know if I have ADD. I don't know what's going on. But right away, I was like, what's in the backpack? And he reaches into the backpack. And of course, jokingly, I'm like, hey, like, hey, man, like, don't be shooting. But not shooting. But I was like, don't be like, you know, don't come after me or whatever it was. Yeah. And then he pulled out a big bag of weed. And he was in his early 20s in L.A. And I go, oh, my God. I go, this dude is like, what's in my backpack? It's weed, dude. And I was like, and the audience was laughing because I had no idea what it was. But the surprise that came with it. And then the riff that came off of that, which was me going, and this is all just me being honest. I wasn't writing punchlines. I was mm -hmm. telling the story. I go, I go, look at the world we live in, you guys. I go, this guy can sit in the front row. And when I ask him what's in his back, he pulls out a bag of weed and goes, weed, dude. I go, <laughs> I go when I was your age, 21, if I had weed at the comedy club, I'd be sitting in the back, sweating bullets, turning to my friend going, I can't believe you made me bring weed, man. We're going to get arrested and do 10 years to life. So you understand what I'm saying? It was just yeah. me being open to what might come. So, And that obviously comes with practice and time, but I would encourage younger comics to do things like that. Yeah, that's super scary for a lot of people because what you're saying is don't a lot of people do it like, hey, you got a backpack. You know, backpacks are weird, you know, and then they go right. into their backpack material. So you're really talking about leave yourself open for inspiration just to talk and to see where it goes, right? And right, and if it doesn't go anywhere, at least you're connecting to the audience. Well, and, and also, by the way, this all comes from, I always compare comedy to boxing. Uh, if you wanna be a good boxer, you can hit a heavy bag, speed bag. There's so many things you can improve on, right? Work on your endurance, work on your footwork. It's a million things you can do. Comedy is the same. You can become a better writer, a better performer, better crowd work. There's always a lot of stuff. So I always, again, encourage young comics. I go, put yourself in uncomfortable situations. Get up late at night when there's the stakes are low and talk to the audience then. Get Be the opening act at a place when people still haven't come in. Talk to them then. So for me, one of the places where I had exponential growth was uh, when I became a regular at the comedy store and Mitzi would give me the 11.30 spot, and then I would get bumped by Eddie Griffin, and then Dice, and then Paul Mooney. Now I'm up at 1.30 in front of three people, and I can't go up there and just do my act, because then it's just 15 minutes of silence, because they're just gonna stare at me going like, "Is this? does this guy know it's 1.30 and we're drunk? So right away, I'm gonna start talking to them and go, why are you guys here? I'll tell you why I'm here. I'm making 15 bucks, and I sat and watched three you know, legends bump me, why are you here? And th that, so, because sometimes I have comedians who'll be like, can I come open for you? And basically they want to come in front of a big crowd that's hot and excited and they've bought expensive tickets and dressed up nice and they're out on the town and they're going to laugh at the first five minutes of whatever you say. So that's what they want to get in front of. I go, that's not the crowd that you want to get in front of. You want to get in front of the three drunk people <laughs> who are not even paying attention to you and you got to go, hey, pay attention to me. You know what I'm saying? And to yeah. this day, I do that. I, I, it helps me write. So I was in New York City recently, and I was there because I was doing a show at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center on a Friday. Got in early on a Thursday to do some spots because I love New York. So I got in touch with the 
uh, SD at the Comedy Cellar. I said, you got a spot? She goes, sure. She gave me the Village Underground. And then there's a new club I started to work as well called The Stand. It's a beautiful club over down uh, by Union Square. I said, hey, can I get a spot? And they go, we'll give you three spots. So all of a sudden, I had more spots than I really wanted because I saw, suddenly had four spots on a Thursday night and I just flying in that day. And I'm like, what am I doing? I should do one spot at the, at the Village Underground, one spot at the stand and then chill. But I was like, you know what? And by the way, the the way the, the stand works, it's got an upstairs and a downstairs. So he's like, I'll put you downstairs, then go to the next show upstairs and go back downstairs. And I'm going, do I want to do the same set like four times that night just doing the same jokes and I go no I don't and because of that when I went to the stand after I'd done my village underground set when I went to the stand I was just ready to just talk about other stuff that had happened to me that day because I go, I'm not going to do that material and right when I got on some guy made a comment about this watch I was wearing and then I started telling the story about the watch and I didn't even have punchlines I was looking for punchlines but I go let me let me try this out. And then it worked its way to something. And I found a couple of jokes that night that then I started working throughout the night. But that to me was more fun for me than going up and going like, okay, here's my 10 minutes that I've got set up that will yeah. in 15 that I always do. That's boring. Yeah. I mean, we started this conversation talking about improv, which I think that's why every stand-up comic needs to do it because in improv, you come in with nothing. Like you, if when you have the idea of how the scene should go, that's when you fuck it up. You really yeah. got to come in with nothing. And to do that and work it, this is, this is really inspiring to me because I get sometimes, and I don't know if you do this, and I'm sure you do this when you have to do specials, is you, you get uh, too attached to the script, right? Yeah. And, and it feel it's not as fun, right? It's you become about being perfect, doing the material like you rehearsed it. And it seems like there's a fear because you're not letting room for the, in, you know, the, your spontaneity to come out, your, your talent to come out. Do you find well, that? I think, yeah, I think harder than an improv is a late night set. Cause a late night set, you have five minutes, you've practiced it. You got to hit the jokes, you know, they've approved it, etc. Although I will say one of the best late night sets is you see Sam Kinison doing Letterman and he walks into the audience and he starts screaming at people and Letterman's dying and everyone's dying because he's just, it looks like he's left this, you know, he's left the script. Like he's not on stage anymore. He's in the audience. So even then, if you can be funny, I saw Mike, Mike Epps did a comic view back in the day where he did a lot of like he would make fun of the crowd in the front and one of the people in the in the crowd was this guy his name's tiny he recently passed away he's that he's the black guy who always was like the tough guy he had a bald head always yoked and he had cro he was cross-eyed mm -hmm. so mike epps is making fun of him in the front row and to play along this guy gets up and like threatens mike epps and mike epps starts running and now he's chasing mike epps on the stage totally unscripted it seemed at least it seemed that way and people are dying, and that really elevated Mike Epps. So similarly, no matter what your set is, if you can be open to it, it's a great place to be. The reason I think we do on a special, if you're able to shoot two special, two shows for the special, that's always a little freeing because you'll sit there and go, okay, first show, let me just get the jokes that I need to make sure are in this special. Let me get those out. 
Second show, you go, I'm going to go loose now and see what happens. So I've had that quite often, um, except one special that I shot uh, it was called I'm Not a Terrorist, but I've played one on TV. That one was at the Wiltern in L.A., and we only had one chance at it. It was whatever, uh, you know, one shot to do the show. And what I did for that, I was like, okay, I'm intentionally going to do about an hour and 20 minutes or so. Or I'm going to do all the jokes. I'm, I'm going all out. I'm just going to keep going. And I knew that I could do that hour and 20 and then edit it down to whatever I needed. Because really for special, you want to come in at about an hour. Um, so I try, I still try to be loose if I can, even in a situation like that, because I mean, how many times have I thought what you just said, which is like, okay, I got my jokes, I'm ready to go. And then I get there and I'm like, oh God, this crowd is not what I anticipated. And then you got to loosen them up by starting to talk to them. Like corporate gigs are perfect for that, right? You go to a corporate gig, no one's paying attention. They're there for the chicken and to impress the boss, shake a hand, <laughs> go home, you know? And so... Quite often, I'll be like, I mean, it's kind of like in that Adam Sandler movie. I forget what it was called, um, where he was playing the comedian with uh, Seth Rogen. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. He had cancer, whatever. I forget what it was called. Um, but he and Seth Rogen, Adam Sandler's the headliner, and then Seth Rogen's his opening act, and they go to do a corporate gig for, I think, like Facebook or something. And Adam Sandler says, the first thing you want to do is you want to cuss out the rival of whatever company you're performing for and so seth rogan has his, in his mind that he's gonna go on stage and be like you know you know fuck my space or whatever it was and it just so happens that james taylor is also part of that night and he goes on stage he goes before i start you guys fuck my space and they all laugh and they're like oh they love james taylor but similarly i did it i did a gig for um what were they i think it was like it was like uh uh um franchisees of uh like quickie mart or something i forget what it was it was one of these mart places and of course i'm gonna go up there and at the beginning i'm just gonna be like guys before we get started i just want to say you know i never liked 7-eleven they could take their sevens and their 11s and stick it up their asses and they're like oh you know like they're you know what i'm saying or, or I, yeah. did, I did another corporate event for jack in the box and the best part of the act because as I was talking to the crowd and going, who's here tonight? Uh, you know, someone's from Bangladesh or someone's from, they're all franchisees. They're all immigrants and they're and it's an international crew. And I'm going, my God, you guys are like the United Nations. And then I start going, I don't know what happened in the middle of the act. I go, I'm sorry, like you guys, you're Filipino. I go, how do you say Jack in the Box in Tagalog? Like, how do you, and then they get up and like, da 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 da. And now that becomes funny. And then I go, <laughs> now I'm going to everyone in the room finding out how they say Jack in the Box in different countries. And <laughs> I didn't write that. You just thought um, of it in the moment, right? I mean, the moment because I was open to it. And I was open yeah. to it because I was going, I need to un I need to figure out, because, you know, when I go up on top, hey, I'm Maz Jobrani, I don't care where I'm from. I, unless if I'm like, you know, it's one thing to be like, oh, it's Jay Leno from The Tonight Show. Okay, yeah. we know that guy. But if you go, hey, I'm Maz Jobrani, I got a Netflix special and this and this and this. And they're like, whatever, I'm eating my chicken. But then once I start going to the crowd and going, you know, whatever, you know, you got to unlock that audience is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's such good advice. I'm going to I'm going to take that with me just to like be open just to have conversations because they expect like just a show and you got to You got to break that key. I love it. So what you know, in closing, 
Um, what advice would you give to comics who are having a tough time? I mean, especially since COVID, nobody's nobody's had a you know a lot of work. We've been kind of trying to do things online. But what what about now? Things are opening up. What would you say to comics who've been trying it and just not getting paid gigs? Um, they're almost ready to give it up. What would you say to them? What any any kind of advice? To you them? know, I mean, the number one piece of advice I'd give anybody is I go write as much as you can and get on stage as much as you can. That's simple, right? So just five, ten times a week, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. I always. I've been using Ronnie Chang as a good example. If you watch his uh, first Netflix special, he talks about coming from Hong Kong, moving to New York, and just hitting the ground running. And you can see when he does that special, it's like, ta -ta 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 -ta. it's just a hard-hitting special that he put time and effort into. And you see it. So I tell people, get on stage five, ten times a week. Be in places. I heard Chris Rock one time told somebody, you, you need to move to New York or L.A., Obviously, there's other cities as well where you can get up, but you just got to get up five, ten times a week. Um, another thing about uh, you know getting paid, I was talking to uh, Richard at the um, Comedy Magic Club one time, and he said the advice he gave somebody. He said, "I told them, you know, don't quit your day job thinking that oh you're just going to go start making money. Like, do what you need <laughs> to do in order to be able to afford then doing." the comedy so for me when i first started i was a i was an assistant in an advertising agency that's when i was uh, taking your classes and that day job you know paid me whatever it was a little bit of money to be able to you know you know live at that time um and then i would go to do the comedy store and the laugh factory at night or i would get a gig driving a few hours away. I, I wasn't on the road. I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to leave here and go and make money on the road. I said, I'm going to keep my day job and then do the the gigs to get better and better and better. And you really got to just figure out that balance of what it is, you know, because as you just said, it's not, if people don't know who you are, no one's going to pay you enough to really, you know, be able to live um, and so it's not a bad idea to have a job, whatever, whether it's Uber or whatever it is, and then do your five to 10 gigs a week, wherever you are. And then if eventually a headliner goes, let's go on the road, then it's just about managing, okay, how do I keep my job or get paid or, you know, it's, it's, it's all a transition, but I wouldn't say throw everything, just no. quit and show up and be like, oh, I'm going to start making money doing comedy. That's not going to happen. No, it takes a while. And tell me about just, I know you're on Clubhouse a lot. How has that helped you in developing material or connecting with Clubhouse, other people? Clubhouse is interesting. For a minute, I was on a lot. When I first found out about it, I was on a lot. Now a lot less. Um, and really it wasn't about material. It was just about connecting with people. Um, I've done a couple of Clubhouse comedy shows with Leah Lamar, and those were fun because going back to what I said, lowering the stakes, I haven't felt like, oh, I need to do material because it's not conducive to just doing your material. They're, you're not seeing the people. They're just listening. It's like a phone conversation. So both times that I've done stand-up on there, or maybe two or three times, I've just been, I've tried to riff about whatever's going on in my life. And I've just like used it as 10 minutes of complaining and found tidbits <laughs> you find you find little tidbits that you could then maybe develop into an into your stand-up act um but besides clubhouse i'm a lot more active on instagram i'm active i've become i've started to use tiktok a friend of mine nimish patel who is a very funny comedian he told me that he started posting his um 
little uh, his sets and his crowd work on TikTok. And he said, all of a sudden, he goes, five, six months ago, I didn't have a tour. Suddenly, I've got a following and they come see me on tour. So I think social media can really help nowadays in terms of growing a fan base. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something you got to be serious about and just be consistent with. So keep consistent, write a lot of material, get up and perform as much as you can, post it on TikTok, post it on Instagram. And uh, is your mother finally proud of you, Moss? <laughs> How was she when she when I think she mom, came Dad? around. My mom came around. And, How long uh, did it take her? It took a little bit. You know, she was, she was entertained by it all early on. But I think there was times when people were coming up to her and saying like, oh my God, I'm a fan of your sons. And I was like, oh, that's great. And then that transitioned into like, she, one time she's like, I was at the airport and uh, I met a couple of your fans. I go, oh, that's great. And she goes, they told me that you need to write more new material. I was like, tell them to go screw themselves. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Maz Jabrani, look in the description, click on the link and see where he's touring. You've got to see this guy live. Thank you so much, Maz. Thank you, Judy. Great talking to you. Great talking to you. For your special gift, Go to themessageofyou.com. That's themessageofyou.com and get your free one-year subscription to the Message of You University, which is full of lessons to help you find your message and turn it into a book, a TED Talk, or a paid speaking career. That's themessageofyou.com.